Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Club 46, driven by Bridgestone. I'm Jay Crawford, and I am thrilled to be joined today by all-time great former Cleveland Brown. They called him Bam Bam, Dick Ambrose. Dick, so good to see you. Thanks for taking some time for us. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. In these interviews, Dick, we like to uh, find out a little bit about everything, all aspects of your life, going back to your early years into college, and then, of course, your playing days with the NFL and your post-playing days. But before we go back to the beginning, I, I always like to start by asking you for one of your favorite memories during your time with the Cleveland Browns. When you think back on that time, what, what's the most vivid and, and favorite memory that you have? Well, that's always a tough question. Uh, I, over the years now, I've probably changed my answer several times. I, I like to look at it more in, in a collective sense now, uh, just because of the number of years that passed. No one play stands out among many of the others. Uh, so I always now, in my elder years, uh, look back to the uh, 1980 season uh, of the Cardiac Kids, uh, the ones that most people remember. Uh, when we talk about the Browns teams of that era. And uh, that was just a very unique uh, and special season for all of us on the team. It was very, uh, one, of those, one of those things that where you uh, come together as a team and, uh, you know, we played together. Uh, we lost together. We lost the, uh, the Red Bright 88 game. Uh, we lost it together. But uh, the whole season in and of itself, uh, just gave me the uh, appreciation of, you know, being on a team, uh, a team that all came together and, and at the right time, because I think we did probably achieve maybe more than, uh, than uh, we should have at the time. But uh, it, it, uh, it was a great, it was a great year and a great memory for me. All right, Dick, uh, now let's go back to the early years um, growing up in, in New Rochelle, New York. What was life like for a young Dick Ambrose there? Well, uh, I thought it was pretty good. I was the youngest of six uh, kids, uh, three girls, three boys. And I had my two older brothers were uh, the next oldest to me. In other words, the three girls came first, then three boys. Uh, so my parents are very organized in that regard. Uh, and my two older brothers played football, which was what influenced me to uh, know and love football. Uh, so. I played at an early age in uh, the Nourishell uh, Youth Tackle League at the time. Uh, and then I played also at my uh, grade school, Holy Family uh, Grammar School in uh, Nourishell. And uh, from there, I went on to uh, uh, all, all boys Catholic high school, similar like a St. Ed's or Ignatius here. It was uh, Iona Prep uh, was the name of my high school. and. Um, course playing football was my number one uh activity uh there other than trying to be a good student which right. i thought i was uh, <laughs> and um uh i i that's where i really developed uh you know a love and and i learned the game uh especially you know in high school and, and learned a love of the game because we really had a pretty good program and uh, at the time so uh, from there, the next step obviously was college. I was looking at a lot of different schools, but I was not, you know, your blue chip uh, uh, prospect out of high school. Uh, I was still about six feet and about 200 pounds. Uh, so I wasn't really uh, the kind of guy that would go to Ohio State or someplace like that. And basically I, I was told that 
uh, early on. So I was confining my uh, search, college search to Ivy League schools. And then I also uh, had a contact through my dad uh, down at the University of Virginia. Uh, I went there for a visit. Uh, they, I liked them, they liked me. Uh, they did offer me a scholarship. Uh, so that's where I spent the next four years uh, of my football career and academic career. And it was a good decision. I'm glad I went there. It was very obviously a very high rated academic school. Uh, I met a lot of good people there, uh, played football, uh, you know, did fairly well, although the team itself was not uh, outstanding. Uh, most we ever won in one season was four games. We played in the Atlanta Coast Conference, which was competitive at the time, but certainly wasn't the Big Ten or anything like that. I think the conference is uh, much more competitive nationally now than it was uh, back then. But in any event, uh, I played well enough uh, to earn some honors in college uh, that got some attention with the Pro Scouts and uh, I thought I would be a good candidate for uh, the NFL draft. Uh, NFL, and I, I, of course, people, a lot of people blow smoke uh, at you uh, at those times, especially those that are trying to represent you. And uh, I had I had an impression that I would go in the top five rounds. Uh, that never happened. I went in the 12th <laughs> round of 1975 draft. Uh, now, at least there were uh, 17 rounds back then. They, they've since, since reduced the number of rounds. Uh, but So I wasn't in the last round, but I wasn't really in the top round either. Uh, so I came into uh, Cleveland with uh, very little expectations for me. Of course, I had high expectations for myself. Uh, playing in the NFL was in, uh, in grade school, and uh, I never really knew if the dream would work out or not, but I certainly never gave up the hope. And uh, now I'm here at a camp in uh, in Cleveland, and we were at Kent State at that time in 1975. And uh, it was a fortunate situation for me because the Browns weren't that good in 1975. And uh, Forrest Gregg uh, was just named head coach. He had taken over for Nick Scorich, who had been fired the year before. Uh, so, uh, and Forrest was a guy that was not given anybody, any veteran that is a, a free pass. In other words, everybody really had to earn a spot on the team. Uh, so he ran a very uh, tough training camp. Uh, at least that's what the veterans uh, tell me because uh, I, <laughs> I thought it was okay uh, as far as the uh, uh, degree of difficulty, uh, but he ran a, a Green Bay Packers type uh, training camp. And uh, we really had a, uh, it was a long period of time because if you think back then, uh, we played six preseason games. Wow. Uh, before preseason uh, started, you had two weeks of uh, two-a-day practices with the full team. But before the veterans came in, you had the rookies come in uh, for a full week of practice uh, before any any veterans ever showed up. Uh, so you had almost almost a 10-week period of time before you played your first game. Uh, now that's practically an entire college football season uh, before <laughs> you even start your NFL career. So I was most of the time very uh, uh, kind of worn out, even for you know a 22-year-old at the time. For the Cleveland Browns, the 1975 season began with bright hopes and many new faces. Eleven rookies made the team, and more than half became starters under the regime of Forrest Gregg. 
The enchanted forest was well aware the many rookies, combined with a new staff and brutal schedule, did not bode well for the season to come. And uh, all of us that made the team that year uh, said, you know, if we can make it through this year, that's it. You know, we're quitting after this. This is too tough. <laughs> um, needless to say, none of us ever took uh, each other up on that offer. Uh, we all uh, played the whole season. It was a kind of a disastrous season. We went 3-11 and 11, uh, uh, that year. And, uh, you know, the, the next season, obviously, uh, we improved. Uh, and But after three years of Forrest Gregg, that was the end of – his regime. Uh, there was a regime change and Sam Rotigliano was brought in. And I do have to credit Sam uh, for injecting a new kind of attitude in the team. Uh, and that was in uh, 1979 uh, was his, uh, or 78 was his first year, excuse me. And uh, uh, I, I was really impressed that he called uh, each and every player, you know, when he first got the job in Cleveland and, uh, you know, told them what his expectations were of us and the team and how he's going to work to make this a better team. So uh, I really think that was, uh, uh, you know, getting off on the right foot. And uh, he had a different approach than Forrest did, improved enough to get to the point where uh, we were a, a, a playoff team in 1980. And that was, the again, the most memorable season. We went 11-5 and five that year and uh, uh, made the playoffs. And uh, we had the uh, – first round bye because uh, we had won the uh, Central Division Championship after, uh, you know, beating the uh, Houston Oilers in a uh, very critical game down in the Astrodome at the time. Uh, they're now the Tennessee Titans. So a lot of these teams don't even exist anymore. Um, but uh, again, that set up the stage for the uh, game against the Oakland Raiders at the time, uh, who then went to LA and then back to Oakland. Uh, so that's how um, uh, fortunes have changed in the NFL. Uh, but that was the notorious Red Right 88 game here in Cleveland in January of 1981, uh, you know, when it was 10 degrees out, but the wind chill was down below zero. And uh, the field was frozen. It was uh, uh, a typical uh, tundra-type uh, game. And uh, was, I thought it was hard fought, uh, but, you know, we came up short. Our offense, which has been explosive all season long, just kind of uh, kind of puttered a little bit in the uh, cold weather and the bad field. And uh, you know, we did they did mount uh, a typical cardiac kid drive, uh, the very last drive of the game. But that was the one where uh, Brian Sipe threw an interception, and that basically ended that ended the game and ended our playoff hopes that year. And, and any hope that I ever had of uh, going to the Super Bowl. Dick, that game was, was, as you said, hard fought. The field conditions weren't great. Don Cockcroft had missed a couple of right. kicks early in the game. As a bystander at that point, because that's essentially what you are, you're standing on the sidelines watching like the rest of us. You know that you're inside the 15-yard line. It would, be a, it would be a difficult kick under any circumstances um, in a playoff game but particularly given the field conditions and Don's struggles earlier in the game, were, what were you thinking when you saw that the offense was going to stay on the field and they weren't going to go for what would have been a game-winning field goal? 
Well, at that point, I had confidence that, you know, our offense, you know, which had now marched down the field, I believe it was almost 80 yards that they uh, had marched uh, uh, to get down there, uh, you know, was going to do what they always do, and that's score a touchdown. The, uh, the only thing that caused a little doubt in my mind uh, was when Brian dropped back the pass and Lyle Alzado, who was there with me on the sideline, uh, said, I can't believe they're bleeping passing the ball. Uh, and, uh, and just then, uh, you know, Brian threw the ball and the, the crowd just went totally silent. It was, you could hear a pin drop in a stadium with 80,000 people. And, uh, Mike Davis from the Raiders picked off the ball and fell to the ground. And the interesting, uh, sidelight on, on that is, uh, years later, uh, you know, Greg Pruitt, you know, left us and got picked up by the Raiders, uh, like the next year, the two years later, uh, he told us that, uh, in practice, uh, he watched Mike Davis. Mike Davis had the worst hands of any of the defensive backs on the Oakland Raiders. He said he could, he would drop everything, but that day in those conditions, that ball just stuck right in his hand. And, uh, that was the end of our, uh, our dream. And I guess, Maybe that was meant to happen. If, if here a guy that can't catch a cold catches that ball in those conditions, maybe that was meant to be. Uh, I guess it is meant to be, and we just have to live with it. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Clutch performance when it matters most. That's why Bridgestone DriveGuard tires are built with the resilience to withstand bumps, bruises, even nails. Engineered to drive up to 50 miles after a flat, they're designed with the sole purpose of getting you where you need to go. Bridgestone, official tire of the NFL. Dick, was there a sense of cruel irony that that team, which made its reputation on late scores to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, had its incredible run end on a play that went the other way. Yeah, I, I think it was the irony is appropriately pointed out in the NFL films version of that with uh, legendary John Facenda doing the narrating uh, said in, in for uh, that he said for the 1980 season, the, the Browns, Browns lived by the forward pass. In the playoffs, they died by it. And, and that was very appropriate uh, for the moment. Yeah, it certainly was. I, I, I've uh, asked this question of many players that have lost just gut-wrenching games. Because really, even though there were some great teams in the late 80s and early 90s that lost in the AFC Championship game, it wasn't until we saw what happened to Denver in the Super Bowls those years where we realized we probably weren't as close to winning the Super Bowl as we had thought at the time. So really, going back to 1964 in the championship, it was that 1980 team that in all likelihood was, was the, position, the best position team to bring a Super Bowl to Cleveland. And so when I ask the question um, of athletes that have lost games such as that, um, when did you get over it? I've often been told, I'll let you know when it happens. Right. When when did you put that loss in your rearview mirror? How long did that take? Well, I knew it took at least a month to even accept the fact that we had lost, and uh, it it 
first came to light, you know, the following Monday when, you know, your body's just used to getting up and going into practice uh, of the week, the, the day after the game. And, uh, you know, that just didn't exist anymore. You know, we didn't have to go anywhere because the season's over. And uh, so that took a while, but yeah, it was at least a month before uh, it really uh, set in that, you know, we're, and, and you start watching other teams playing in the games that you think you should have been in, uh, that it starts sinking in and you just uh, somehow have to accept it. But I, I think you're right uh, to truly accept the loss. You, you probably have to be uh, out as far as I am now, you know, which is uh, years and years and years later uh, to be able to look at it in a perspective and not feel some kind of sense of emptiness or loss in your heart because it does hurt. Uh, Dick, how would you characterize your emotions then watching the Raiders handle the Chargers in the AFC Championship game and then pretty much have an easy time of it all the way through the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl trophy that really, if not for uh, one play, should have been yours? Yeah, I mean, there was very little sense of vindication when the Raiders went all the way. I suppose we could feel a little bit better than had they, you know, gone to San Diego and gotten trounced by the Chargers uh, that year. Uh, so that was some modicum of satisfaction, but wasn't, didn't really do anything to, uh, to uh, quench the fire of uh, despair that was, flaming in all of us um let's go back to your uh your draft day experience um as you mentioned today seven rounds and done you would have been um relegated yeah. to the hopes of making the team as an undrafted free agent what do you remember dick about your draft day experience how did you find out that you were drafted take us through all that yeah well uh it's one of those uh days and, and i'm at college um you know i'm not going to classes that day because i'm waiting for a phone call and that's how it happened you get a phone call uh they didn't have the televised draft like they do now they didn't make it a, a all-day event or anything like that uh but i knew that at some point in time during the day i should get a phone call uh i waited uh the entire first day of the draft and there was no phone call and the draft because of 17 rounds it lasted two days uh, so, uh, we got into the second day of the draft and then I got a phone call. I forget what time of the day it was. I think it was mid, mid around midday. And it, uh, was from Mike Nixon, who was a scout with the Browns at the time. So it wasn't a coach, wasn't, uh, you know, front office person. I guess you could say he was a front office person, but he said, you've been drafted by the Browns. And although I was happy to be drafted, it was still kind of a disappointment uh, that it had gone that long. So I was kind of uh, in the mood of saying, yeah, thanks. Uh, and uh, he said, you know, somebody get be getting in touch with you later with uh, plans to come to Cleveland and everything like that. So I was uh, disappointed, but happy that I got the opportunity, uh, but more disappointed than happy. And uh, so then obviously the uh, rookies had to come into Cleveland uh, for a, uh, a rookie camp. Uh, and that was a couple of weeks later, uh, my first trip to Cleveland 
ever. And uh, uh, we were, uh, they were set up at uh, Baldwin Wallace College uh, back in those days. Uh, that's where uh, the practice facility was. So I had to uh, learn the name Berea, Ohio, and find out where the practice facility was. I was there and that's the first opportunity. And you walk into the locker room, which was the, the, the practice locker room for my entire career. Uh, and there you see your name on a locker and there's a jersey hanging in the locker, and that's where I saw the number 52. And that's the first time I ever saw that. That's the first time I ever knew that was the number that I was going to get. Uh, so there wasn't anything like, "Hey, I want number 34. I want this." You know, you you just get it, and that's it. And, and shut up because that's your number. Uh, so I said, "Okay, that's my number. Uh, uh, that's fine." And uh, you know, went through the practice sessions with the other guys and. All the other guys were, you know, kind of the same degree of uh, nervousness and kind of not knowing what to expect. Some guys were a little cockier than other guys. Uh, guys are in, in a locker room. And, uh, you know, so we had a good time. We uh, said goodbye, left after that weekend. And then uh, you didn't come back until uh, time for training camp in July. Uh, obviously, before then, uh, I was doing – best I could to get ready. Uh, I thought I was in the best shape of my life uh, when I went to that first training camp uh, because, again, this is a golden opportunity. I don't want to blow it. So I did uh, do everything. I mean, I had my own two-a-day workouts uh, on my own uh, down at uh, University of Virginia. And, uh, you know, so by the time I got up to Cleveland and uh, to Kent State in, uh, in, in 75, uh, I, I was ready. Uh, so it was, and again, everything's a new experience. All the players are, you know, much better than uh, the players that you're used to playing against in college. Uh, you know, everybody's basically, you know, an all-star. And it, it was, uh, like I say, a really tough training camp uh, com and especially compare, I don't want to I'm sound really like an old guy now, but especially compared to the training camps of today, which I've uh, certainly seen as a fan from the sidelines, you know, we did a lot more hitting. Uh, we, we hit every, we had, uh, we started out with three days and then we went to two days. Uh, but we, we hit for at least two of those sessions. And uh, uh, nowadays they want to avoid the contact, you know, for obvious reasons, they don't want to, get players injured playing against each other, you know, before they ever get on a, on the playing field against another team. Uh, and I understand that, and it, and it probably does make sense. Uh, but, you know, back then, I think we're a little bit more expendable and uh, ship them out and get somebody else uh, to take their position. So uh, it was a great experience uh, in terms of survival skills. And, uh, but uh, again, we grew real close as a team uh, just by having survived that common experience. And, and I think that that helps, that does help build a team. I don't want to like egg coaches on to say, yeah, if you have really tough practices, you, you have a better knit team. But uh, I think that is true. That does happen. It is different today. You pointed out, you know, the lack of hitting and, and you know, that you don't do the doubles anymore. And it, it is obviously, uh, player safety driven and try to add some years to their careers if you can take off some abuse in in training camps and in the weekly practices but it can still be a mental grind for these young guys that are coming in it's intimidating 
Um, what, what advice would you give Dick to rookies heading into their first training camps? Well, I guess, and you're right, it is intimidating because, you know, when you're there, you go there, first of all, and you're meeting all the other rookies, but this is rookie camp. Uh, you go through a whole week of practice and you start feeling good about yourself. Then all the veterans come in and you go, oh my God, look at these guys, you know, because all these guys are huge. And um, uh, it is, it's extremely intimidating. All I can say, you know, for a new player is you just, you really just have to believe in yourself uh, you have to kind of like, uh, you know, for anything really, you kind of got to weed out the distractions, concentrate on, uh, you know, what you have to do, uh, and not worry about other guys, what, what they look like, how they play or anything like that. You know, of course, if you're lined up against somebody in practice, you got to beat them, but that's a technique thing. Uh, but it is, it's a big psychological game. And, uh, you know, what Sam Bertigliano and Sam had a lot of good sayings, but, you know, he said, uh, the game is played 90% in between the ears. Uh, meaning if you, if you're not using your head, uh, you're not going to be worth much as a player. I don't care how big and strong you are. Uh, you do have to use your head to be uh, successful in this game. Did you, Dick, bring something new and different to each training camp, something that you wanted to focus on particular, in particular that year to try to improve your game? Uh, yeah, I mean, based on, you know, what happened in the preceding season, obviously we'd want to do better in terms of the one loss record, and that's an overall team thing. But, yeah, it is uh, something I learned in college. You know, you try to get a little bit better every day uh, at whatever it is you do, you know, and if it was pass drops one year or just, you know, uh, lateral movement another year, get, or shedding blockers. Uh, uh, you know, every year there was – you always had to improve on a lot of things. It wasn't really just like, oh, if I get my pass drops, uh, get quicker into my zone during pass drops, you know, I'll be a better player. It wasn't that simple. It was, you know, I got to do that better. Uh, I got to get, you know, outside running plays. I got to scrape off the outside uh, end and, and come up field quicker. I got to wrap up better when I'm tackling – I got to catch the ball better. Uh, you know, those things all need work every year, every time. You, you really, there's nothing you can relax on. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Performance when it matters most. Which is why Bridgestone tires are built for just that. Whether it's driving up to 50 miles to safety after a flat, confident control in wet conditions, or the dependability of an 80,000-mile limited warranty, Bridgestone's roster of tires has got you covered. Bridgestone, official tire of the NFL. Conditions apply. See BridgestoneTire.com slash warranty for details. Who were some of your favorite teammates during your years with the Browns? Well, uh, Clay Matthews and I became real close, uh, you know, in our early years, and he was drafted three years after me. Uh, but we'd be playing came close and are still friends to this day. Uh, a lot of other guys that were there already. Uh, I remember John Garlington, who is now deceased. Uh, he was one of the early uh, linebackers I was with on that, on that crew. Uh, Charlie Hall was another great uh, linebacker uh, uh, in that, those early 70s uh, or mid 70s when I, when I was playing. Um, but, uh, you know, some Dino Hall, uh, you know, guys that came in and out of the organization, uh, you know, were, uh, you know, good friends. So, uh, Dave Logan was, was a great teammate, uh, and, uh, you know, had the biggest hands I've ever seen. No wonder he would be able to, first guy I could, uh, saw that was catching balls with one hand all the time. You know, now they do it a lot more. I think they make, made the ball actually a little smaller too. Uh, but in any event, uh, you know, those are uh, some really good guys that uh, 
I knew and, and had experience with. And Dick, so you bring forth. up Clay Matthews. Um, when you look at his numbers and the impact that he had, even if you just shed the stats and you just look at how he impacted a football game, how in the world is he not in Canton? Well, that, I don't understand that either. I think when you talk about uh, Canton, and I've certainly tried to advocate on behalf of Clay for the Hall of Fame, I do think he's de deserving of that. Uh, but I think once you get into the uh, segment of players that they deem to be, you know, outside of the, after you leave, after you get by the 10 year, after you retire uh, um, phase, then you're in this uh, level with all the rest of the old players. Uh, and you're part of a group of about, you know, 5,000 players and they have to weed through those to see who's going to be uh, a, 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 a worthy recipient. But uh, you're right. You know, Clay played for a, an extremely long period of time, especially for a linebacker who, who get injured and take a lot of hits. Um, so his longevity is one thing, but he had a, a high level of performance during all those years and was always a sack leader of the team uh, and, and or, or leading or up there in terms of a uh, number of tackles. Uh, you know, so he was he was a playmaker. Uh, in his position as a linebacker, and he was an integral part of the team, which I think is what they look for, uh, you know, when you're looking at, at the Hall of Fame, and, and certainly he should be there. I don't know why. I think it's just, it, to me, the uh, selection process gets a little bit too political and, and less uh, dependent on just the, the player's credentials and his uh, worth as a player, and, and you start getting all these other factors involved. And uh, so that's, it's part of the political process and it, you know, doesn't uh, do, do the right thing all the time. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, take us through your career as, as you're winding down as a player. Um, I'm always fascinated by the process that each player uses when they go through the mental gymnastics of, is it time? Do I, do I have another year? What was that process like for you, Dick? Uh, it's always difficult to say uh, I'm done with this game. And uh, I was one of those people that didn't want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, this was all going to end someday. It was very hard for me to accept that. And as a matter of fact, uh, as what, what happens with a lot of players is you just get, you play long enough and you get injured out of the game. And, uh, and that's basically what happened to me. I got injured in 1983. I broke my left leg in a game, uh, missed you know, a significant number of games in that season, tried to come back in 1984. I was having a lot of pain in uh, my left ankle as a result of that break and uh, had to have subsequent surgery during the season or right before the season started, which I thought was going to be open and shut. I'll take two or three weeks and I'll be right back at the lineup. Uh, that didn't happen. That, uh, uh, that got infected. Uh, so I had an infection that lasted basically uh, the entire season. So I, I missed the whole 84 season. And then I tried to come back in 85 after this ankle and the infection finally healed up. And uh, I was able to run around, but I really wasn't, uh, anywhere close to uh, the level of performance that I had in 1983 before I got hurt. So it was, 
uh, inevitable uh, that, you know, Marty Schottenheimer was the coach at that point in time. And he had to call me in his office and said, you know, if you were back at your 83 level, it's no, it's a no brainer. You're on the team, but I, you know, I can't keep you on the team uh, the way you are right now. I go, I understand Marty. And then you got to, this has ha got to happen. So uh, when that happened, it was, uh, you know, again, uh, a tough, it was tough psychologically for me, you know, to give up this thing that I had uh, loved throughout my life and, and had gotten to the level where it was, was my dream and I'm living my dream, but now the dream is over. So uh, it's always difficult, I think, uh, for guys to go through that. So for a guy like yourself, well-educated, very bright, I don't know if it was always your ambition to one day become a lawyer, but how did that transformation take place? Um, it was not always my ambition to become a lawyer. It was something that I had to uh, actually uncover. And I did have help. I talked to uh, the gentleman who was my agent at the time. He did suggest that I do take some you know, post-career type counseling uh, for uh, you know, job uh, uh, selection, uh, that type of counseling. And I did that uh, through Case Western Reserve uh, at uh, in Cleveland. And uh, they're the ones that actually suggested that a career in law might be something that you might like, you have the aptitude for it. And uh, so I did start down that route. And it is, you know, it's a long route, you do have to take an entrance exam, uh, which I did. Uh, and I, I did get uh, uh, accepted into law school. Uh, now that was actually happening all in uh, 85 because, and I was still playing at the time because that was my backup uh, because, because of what happened in 84, I go, this is not going to last forever. That's when I first started realizing, you know, I'm 32 years old and I have a bum ankle. I don't think I'm going to be playing football for too much longer, uh, which turned out to be correct but I had already prepared uh, and had been accepted into Cleveland Marshall College of Law here in town. So uh, I had an acceptance date for law school, but I was also in training camp with the Browns in 85. <laughs> so I had a backup, which I did have to use. And it turned out, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, I was in class, you know, soon after I had uh, uh, been terminated by the Browns. Was there ever a time, Dick, where you're sitting in the classroom, just probably days or weeks after you were wearing a helmet, uh, going through uh, going through practice, where you wondered at warp speed, how did I go from that to this? Um, only in when looking back, yeah, only with the luxury of being able to look back uh, from time. But I, I, you know, once I did get into law school and was, uh, you know that's obviously a demanding uh, schedule. Uh, didn't have a whole lot of time to uh, think back and go, what if, you know, this, what if that, you know, it was too much in the present that I had to concentrate on, which was actually a very good thing, I, I believe, because a lot of other athletes that have had to leave their careers and don't have something to go right into, uh, I think are, are going to struggle more uh, mentally than uh, something that you have to get into right away and you have to devote 100% of your time and attention to, which certainly was law school. Uh, so that was a big help for me. And I think it would have been different had I not had that. 
when, when you first were told by the, the career counseling folks that you might have the aptitude to be a lawyer, what was your original thought to that? Uh, it was, uh, where did that come from? Because really <laughs> I had no, um, no background or training in law. Nobody in my family was a lawyer. I didn't have friends who were lawyers other than, you know, the person that was representing me, um, uh, as you know, for my contract with the Browns. And, uh, so there was really no, uh, nothing to push me in that direction. Uh, was, but, uh, it was obviously something that, uh, somebody believed in me that thought I could do it. So I, I was able to develop that belief in myself and, uh, and you do need that to go forward with anything in life. So I, um, I, again, I, I took all those necessary steps and, and was in that position when the time came, uh, that I had to pull the plug on my athletic career. And, and what a second uh, act you've, you've put together um, from a career as a very successful football player to going to law school, becoming a lawyer, and now, uh, and you have for some time, have been ser serving as a judge here in Cleveland. What has that been like for you to be able to have that second act in the same town, of, uh, but not your hometown as your first? Right. Well, I do believe uh, that it was very important for me to want to stay in Cleveland because I believe this was where, you know, I had established my identity uh, and I believe that, you know, my career and playing with the Browns uh, was kind of a, a, a tie to this community that I didn't want to give up and just you know, go somewhere else, even back, you know, to my hometown because there was really nothing there for me. Uh, so I knew this was my best opportunity. Uh, and when I got established in the law and working for law, uh, several law firms here in town, uh, that was still my identity. And that's the thing that I, I think is interesting that, uh, you know, once you play for the Browns in this town, no matter what else you do, you'll always be remembered as a Browns player. And uh, that's certainly been the case uh, in, with respect to me. Uh, but that's been a positive thing uh, all along, and uh, I do love the people in Cleveland. Uh, I love the Browns fans, and, and they are very knowledgeable fans. They're not uh, fly-by-nighters. You know, most Browns fans know the whole history, and, uh, you know, the history in the past 20 years has not been uh, too great. But uh, at least we've had some highlights, uh, you know, seasons, uh, you know, going back to uh, with Bernie Kosar, etc. But uh, the uh, transition uh, again because it had the law is a career that you can't uh, really do part-time uh, and you have to dive into it so there are a lot of parallels to uh, football and and training for football getting ready for football because you know being a good lawyer is all about preparation and you know you have to prepare uh, your case you have to know your case inside and out you have to know it better than and you do have an opponent usually uh, in in uh, most uh, litigation settings, at least. So it's very that was very natural for me to uh, dovetail into uh, as far as another career. But once I was into it, you know that was my career. You know the career with the Browns was a something I did in the past, uh, but now this is what I do in the future. And then evolving from a uh, uh, a, a lawyer, a practicing lawyer to a, a judge on the bench, that's been a whole nother transition uh, because that's a whole different kind of law that I do 
practice now than I did as a, uh, a civil attorney for the most part. Sure. I did criminal law, and now I do criminal and civil as uh, my job as a judge. Dick, before we let you go, um, you obviously know the love and the affection that Browns fans have for you. You, uh, you would feel that every time you would take the field at, at, the, at the old stadium. I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell Cleveland Browns fans what they've meant to you through the years, both as a player and as, and as your second career as a lawyer and now a judge. Well, I do think uh, for you Browns fans out there that uh, uh, thank you for all your uh, loyalty and outstanding loyalty, I think, over the years. And especially, uh, you know, for a team that's tried, for a team that's had struggles, teams that failed but had some successes. And I think uh, Browns fans certainly uh, hang on to any little successes that we get. And, and now that I'm a retired player, I'm in that same boat. I'm a Browns fan. So I live and die uh, with what happens on a Sunday. And it's, uh, I, like I said before, I think it's unique in Cleveland that uh, the fans are, are very educated. You know, they go back. We've got a history uh, of the Browns' great teams in, in, the, uh, in the 60s and going back to the 64 championship team. Uh, so I think there's still people around that remember that. Uh, and and if even if they uh, are not still around, they have instilled that in their kids and their grandkids. And they, uh, I've talked to many Browns fans that, you know, uh, said, you know, my dad took me to my first Browns game when I was five years old. And I still remember that day. And I go, that's the kind of uh, bonding that I think has helped, you know, make this team such an integral part of the community. And it really, uh, you know, that's when, when the Browns left Cleveland uh, in, uh, I think it was uh, 93, uh, I, no, 91, I think. And, and, and um, but anyway, that was like, uh, for me, that was like, that's like uh, taking the heart right out of the town. And that was so traumatic uh, for me. And I was so glad when, you know, we finally got a team back again. And now it's, now I think some people might not even remember that, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's part of our history too. Uh, and I do think that if not for Browns fans, that would have never happened. We could still be without a team. But absolutely, really brought them back. Well, Dick, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, to chat with us and for us to hear some of your stories and to catch up with you. You look great. You're doing great. And uh, I, I really appreciate the time that you've made for Browns fans. Thank you so much well, for joining appreciate, well, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Jay. Absolutely. And thank you to Browns fans for watching another edition of Club 46 driven by Bridgestone. We hope to see you again very soon with another current or former all-time great Cleveland Brown. Until then, I'm Jay Crawford and we'll see you soon.